Good afternoon from London. Uh, good evening or good night to those of you joining us from Asia and good morning in Stanford where one of our panelists is joining us. My name is Eric Bergloff. I'm the director of the LSE Institute of Global Affairs at uh, the LSE School of Public Policy. You are most welcome to this webinar, Crucial Role of State Capacity in the COVID-19 Response. This is part of a series of COVID, on COVID-19 and early lessons from the pandemic that we are organizing at the LSE. So, so many economic models and policy recommendations assume a state that can deliver, whether it's about raising taxes from the population or investing in infrastructure necessary for economic growth or delivering the various public goods that are needed to address a pandemic, the combination of a medical emergency and economic crisis that we've seen in, in the COVID-19. But economics has become increasingly focused on the variation across countries in states' capacity to deliver in different dim dimensions. The COVID-19 pandemic has put this variation into sharp relief with some countries responding with remarkable speed and efficacy, while others have been slow in reacting. And when they finally acted, they've done so with less resolve and, and often with inferior results. But we also see countries, particularly in the emerging and developing world, that blindly copies policies uh, which has been successful in advanced economies, often with mixed results, as they often do not have the state capacity needed to implement these policies and face very different uh, local conditions. Understanding what determines and how to build state capacity is a bit of a holy grail for economics and more generally for social science. If you could build state capacity everywhere, we would be much close to solving the many challenges the world faces over this century. Of course, we are not just talking about the state capacity at the national level, but many challenges are global and require state capacity at the global level. But where does state capacity come from and how do you build it? That is what today's session is about. Of course, the capacity may come from the outside the state, from an active civil society, and we'll probably have some discussion of that. Two weeks ago, we had an interesting discussion with Samuel Bowles and Wendy Carlin, among others, of the importance of civil society and other, uh, and other logics than that of the state and the market. So we have a fantastic panel that will allow us to discuss all these issues, and I will introduce them as they speak. We also, of course, want to bring in questions from the audience. Most of you are getting used to the Zoom technology now, but you can use the Q&A function um, and the chat room to ask questions. We're also broadcasting over Facebook and you can post questions uh, over the comments function and we'll try to bring them uh, to uh, the panel. When you ask questions, please introduce yourself with your name and affiliation. But I'll come back to, to that um, uh, when we are done with the presentation. So our first speaker today is Tim Besley, a colleague of mine at the LSE and one of the foremost thinkers on, on state capacity. His book with Torsten Persson, Pillars of Prosperity, is probably the best textbook on the topic. One core thesis in that book is what they call the Anacarenina theory of development. To paraphrase Tolstoy's, all happy families are alike, uh, all unhappy families uh, are unhappy in their own way. And so less developed countries is it's often less developed in their own ways. And this insight, of course, is not new, but they provide in this book, uh, Tim and, and um, Torsten Persson, 
they provide a conceptual framework, a lot of data that can help us um, think about these differences. That, that book is almost a decade old now, and Tim is now going to give us an overview of how to, to think about state capacity in the context of COVID uh, based on his recent work. So please, Tim, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Eric. I'm just uh, sharing my screen here, so hopefully everyone can see the slides. Um, so I'm going to talk a, a little bit, give you a bit of an overview of uh, some of the issues and then get into the, 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 the central topic of today, which is, of course, about the crisis that we're all living through. Um, I'm going to begin just by, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, the term state capacity, uh, I'm just going to uh, start with a bit of an overview of what, what is state capacity and why it matters. Uh, and broadly speaking, state capacity is that set of things which makes states effective in intervening in the economy. And we tend to think of three categories of state capacity, fiscal capacity, which is the power to tax, legal capacity, the power to achieve the rule of law and to regulate markets where needed, and collective capacity, the ability of the state to deliver public services and goods to their citizens. And the reason I was drawn, uh, and Torsten and I were drawn to studying state capacity uh, when, when we, we got into this area, was because we felt that debates uh, were too mired in uh, what I would say is a rather passe debate about the size of government, when what we should really be thinking about is if we are going to advocate state intervention, we should only do so where we believe it can work better than the market. And that's going to depend on the state having the capability uh, to uh, improve upon the market. Uh, and so I guess a mantra for state capacity is we want to make states smarter, not necessarily larger. Uh, and that's kind of the investigation of state capacity that we've been engaged in, as, as Eric said, for more than 10 years now. Just to sort of frame the issue, here's a picture just to talk about fiscal capacity, because uh, people often don't realize just what a remarkable century the 20th century was in building uh, the state in different dimensions. So what this figure here shows you are the tax share in GDP, which is the continuous uh, green line, uh, and uh, for a set of countries, it's not a random set, but it's a set of countries for which there's comparable data across the 20th century. But it wouldn't, I don't think, be particularly different if we took a different set of countries. And the thing to that's remarkable about this, and you should bear in mind, is that in the early part of the 20th century, on average, states were even high-tax states were on average uh, levying about 10% of taxation in GDP, maybe a little more, 10, 12. Uh, but by the end of the 20th century, it was not uncommon for states to be uh, levying between 35, 40% of uh, tax in GDP. On average for this sample of countries, it was around 25%. So there really was a transformation in the state. Now, of course, this, this was happening alongside a number of other things that states that were doing. But this is, this is just an indicative picture for you to bear in mind and to ask yourself the question, well, how did this happen? Why did this happen? And uh, how does it have a bearing on what states can and cannot do? Um, what drives state capacity? Well, that's a whole research project, and uh, uh, I'm not going to go into it in any detail. Um, but uh, the broad argument is that state capacity is more, more likely to be built um, whether it's of any of the three kinds I described, in states that are relatively cohesive, those where there's some agreement on the common purposes for which the state should be deployed. 
Um, it's driven, though, by some factors which are more historic, endowments, the nature of the countries concerned, maybe some of their cultural history, maybe some of their economic history. But centrally, and this will be something we, we get onto in this de debate and discussion today, the politics and institutions of countries are absolutely critical in understanding the kind of state capacity that they, they build. And in particular, Torsten and I have put a lot of weight on the importance of institutions that constrain the abuse of power. Because if state capacity is about making the state more powerful, creating that state capacity, you're going to have to have adequate ways of constraining the potential abuse of that capacity by the state. And the other area, and I'm going to leave this to, to Margaret because she's much better qualified to discuss this than I am, is an important central role in civil of civil society in building state capacity, uh, and in particular the role of many dimensions of that, but one is reciprocal norms. Um, in the crisis, all elements of state capacity have been incredibly important. Uh, fiscal capacity, because states are having to lay their hands on large amounts of public resources, uh, in order to have the capacity to borrow in many cases, states are not increasing for very obvious reason, uh, tax takes during the crisis. So they need to, to allow debt to take the strain. And of course, countries with weak fiscal capacity are unlikely to be able to borrow either at favorable terms, if at all. Uh, and so we've seen fiscal capacity is absolutely central to the crisis response to the extent that states have had to uh, increase spending without having the immediate uh, uh, desire to increase taxation. The second is legal capacity. We've seen all sorts of ways in which the state has regulated economic activity, everything from enforcing lockdowns to try and encourage people to behave in particular uh, ways. Uh, and then finally, collective capacity. One of the central planks of the crisis response has been social protection. In particular, if you take the example of the UK, the implementation in very rapid time of a uh, furlough scheme to protect workers who otherwise would have been made unemployed. And of course, central to it all is the provision of healthcare. So state capacity has been there pivotally in the background in the response to the crisis. And so understanding what the implications of the crisis are for state capacity going forward is, is really uh, rather important. Now, it, Eric mentioned this earlier, many states in the world have not built the kind of state capacity that those of us who live in, uh, in, in the developed world take for granted. Um, uh, lack of state, particularly states, it, it, fragile states around the world, one of the hallmarks of that has been the absence of uh, state capacity. It's not the only feature. Um, and the absence of, face, of state capacity has been created that kind of self-reinforcing cycle that, that, that drives endemic long-run poverty. You cannot build an effective market economy without having the rule of law. I mean, that's a grand statement, but I'd really be willing to defend it in Q&A if anyone wants to uh, dispute that. You have to have basic legal uh, devices, the protection of property rights and other things um, in order to begin to build an effective market economy. Um, and, uh, um, uh, um, that other, if you if you lack the state capacity to build a, an effective economy, that means you have a weak economy, and typically you also have ineffective public sector responses. Um, and of course, behind all of that lies the very thing you need to build state capacity, which is the lack of cohesive policymaking environments 
so that states lack the legitimacy to act. This, in, as we know, in the crisis, uh, has created an urgent need for external support in those countries that lack the state capacity to be able to react autonomously. Um, and one issue, and I hope that we'll come back to this in Q&A, is that we, we mustn't lose sight of the longer term challenges. One of the, the main issues or one of the central issues in state fragility has to be failure to, to provide a, a roadmap in situations where we're trying to provide humanitarian assistance. And so we may end up even weakening state capacity rather than strengthening it during a crisis. There have been many challenges to state capacity during the crisis. There have been really three shocks. One is the health shock, of course, which precipitated this, the attendant economic shock. And I think when we come to write the history books of this crisis, we will also write about a political shock and the challenges this has placed all times of political systems in conducting the normal business of politics, trying to react. And why has that political shock been uh, uh, so evident? I think it's because we are in a world where there really is radical uncertainty. And I, the, 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 both the, the, the underpinning knowledge we need to, to fight the health pandemic, uh, the, the pandemic and to manage the economy is taking us into totally new territory where the standard rules and, and, and ways of operating of a system uh, are, are very poorly understood. And that's manifested itself in a lot of uncertainty about what government's objectives are, um, what are government's going to do. I mean, a lot of us are talking about what happens if there's going to be a second wave uh, of, 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 of the COVID uh, um, uh, pandemic towards, say, the end of this year or whenever it happens. And it's very hard to forecast at this point what governments are going to do. So a lot of uncertainty has been created around what are the motivations of government and what are their responses? Governments being asked to manage a certain kind of trade-off, sometimes very crudely put as, as lives versus the economy. I think that's probably not very helpful, but nobody is very clear about what a good outcome is from the pandemic at this point. I think many people will have their views, but I don't think there's a carefully articulated view and that contributes to this idea of there being a political shock. Um, many of the economic shocks that we're experiencing are conscious decisions of policy. Um, the, 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 the idea of locking down an economy uh, and those are causing the lion's share of the economic costs. So these are acts of commission, not omission. Very often if we look back, say take the 2010 financial crisis, or 2008 financial crisis, it's often by saying government didn't do something that we thought it should do, like regulating the financial sector. This is really rather different. This is about governments taking conscious decisions that are leading to uh, economic uh, uh, stresses in the economy. So it's a very different place. And that's why I think that's part of the political shock. And then finally, compliance. Um, citizens are being asked to do things very often acting against self-interest. Um, and governments uh, do, of course, a certain amount of that all the time. But uh, to the degree that it's being asked of citizens now, I think makes, makes this pandemic really rather different. Okay, I'm nearly done. Two uh, other quick sort of warm up slides. Uh, it's very evident to me at least, having uh, spent some time in, uh, in, in the policy making area during this crisis, that more work is needed on particular aspects of state capacity, which for those of us who are studying state capacity, we were perhaps paying too little attention to. 
One is communication capacities of the state. Uh, as I said earlier, we are not very clear for most countries what the objectives are. Some have been much clearer than others. Um, and communicating those objectives clear to, clearly to the citizens is something that uh, I think governments will, in retrospect, when, the, when there's some time to reflect on this episode, be something we think about. Are there better ways of government communicating about things like this that will enable them to get to a better solution, particularly around creating common purpose? Um, another is the wider debates about resilience and are we doing the right kinds of horizon scanning um, to cope with what will be the future shocks that we face. Data capacities, they're very much under the microscope. Do we really have the real-time capacity to monitor what's going on in our economies and societies? Uh, and I think the answer is patently no. And if you think about a specific example, the need to implement in very short order some kind of tracing, testing, and isolation regime and the data requirements and the capacity to implement that has been a real challenge in pretty much every government, to every government. And that's a really interesting kind of state capacity that I don't think we've been paying sufficient attention to. And then I think we are about to, as we met, try to manage the recovery from the shock, um, I think there will be some very interesting elements of state capacity. I think if you look back, say, at the New Deal style capacity building, which was really transformational in the American state in the 1930s. I think there's a really interesting opportunity to think about, do we have certain capacities that we're going to need to support the economy and particularly to coordinate and finance uh, private investment? We are going to be left, le left with um, a need to provide the space for private firms to invest with confidence in the economy uh, and how we create that and what institutional framework we need to create that is a major challenge that will be left over. So just finally, and, and Eric mentioned this, what about capacities beyond the nation state? Well, uh, one way of thinking about what we've seen in the last few weeks is in a sense, this is the revenge of the nation state uh, against the uh, predictions of cosmopolitans, meaning that we really have seen the nation state being the primary actor um, almost all serious policy response to this pandemic has been at the level of nation states. Although even within that, we see some evidence of resurgent subnational units of government where responsibilities have been taken below nation state level. But almost nothing, uh, I would say, of the global system has played a very pivotal role in meaningful ways um, so far. Um, and of course, that's not to say it hasn't been important. And we do have a global architecture for supporting the emerging market world. And we may again get into that as we proceed. But the WHO very much under the microscope for its actions throughout this. And there will be much to be said on that. And the European Union, too. I mean, again, the question of whether or not the European Union has really stepped up or been pushed up under, reluctantly to manage this crisis. But it's certainly not the case that it's... Uh, 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 in any way, shape or form, displaced the important actions that have been taken at the level of nation states. And that raises the wider question, what, what is the scope for global state capacity? Uh, and I'll just leave you with one thought on that, uh, that at the end of the day, fiscal capacity trumps everything. Um, the reason why um, we have seen so much of the activity having to take place in nation states is that's the only place where governments can, can credibly generate revenues. And without generating revenues, um, it's pretty impossible 
to be a serious player in a crisis like this. Um, and that's why we've seen this exposure, including at the EU level, of the weakness of uh, supranational state capacity. And I'll leave it there. Tim, thank you very much. I'm actually going to take uh, the liberty of breaking a bit the order here because there's a question from uh, Roger Ferro that I think ties in very nicely where you ended. It says, do you think that the present crisis has raised tensions between state capacity and the requirements of the state to act within an international framework? So the idea that you know, you're now supposed to comply with international rules, for example, how you do your health care or how you, you know, how, how do you, how does that fit into what you just said? Is that because, you, you know, you complained, and I think rightfully so, that, you know, we haven't seen much evidence of, of um, the capacity of, of the global community to exert itself in this crisis. But are, is there a tension here between you know, individual states having capacity and the, inter the international community trying to, because it is a pandemic, you know, what happens, You, it, for example, the, the weakest link is very important. And if you have, you know, how do you see that tension? Well, I mean, I, I think, as you could tell from my presentation, I think that yeah. tension is, is real. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there's lots of reasons why that should be the case. I mean, we 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 do have um, because of the nature of accountability in nation states, the ability of of, of uh, policymakers to act quickly and in response to the demands of their citizens. There is nothing of that kind of direct accountability. It's mm -hmm. all indirect via nation states in almost every international institution. And so you simply cannot get either the speed of action or the decisiveness of action. Um, and, and, and you'll know only too well, Eric, from your time at the EBRD, that, that things are really rather different than, than how they were um, when the G20, for example, stood up during the period of the global financial crisis. So it's not that there's an impossibility of acting in a concerted way, mm -hmm. but I don't think the institutional frameworks that we have in place are really fit for purpose when it comes to a global pandemic like the one that we've been through. And we, and we will certainly be, uh, as the dust settles, I, I hope having a proper debate about what we can do. If you recall, coming out of the Second World War, the Bretton Woods institutions were built because of what have been the perceived failures of the interwar period. And we need to have the same soul-searching debate right now about international institutions and then act on it. Uh, and be sure that we build it with sufficient governance and decisiveness so that uh, whoever is running those institutions has sufficient commonality of purpose, that they aren't paralyzed then by, fracture, by fractious international debates, because that, that, that I think, is, is at the moment causing many of our international institutions, because we simply can't build the decisive coalitions internationally, not to be able to act with the same decisiveness as nation states. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll come back to this in, in the discussion. So the next uh, speaker is uh, Margaret Levy. She's a professor of political science at the department uh, of the well, professor at the political science department of Stanford. But maybe more importantly, she is also the director of the Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. It's a paradise of sorts for academics, and you can get a sense of that by looking at her her virtual screen, which shows uh, how beautifully placed it is. I had the pleasure to spend perhaps my most productive year as a researcher at the center. So 
Margaret has worked uh, on comparative political economy, labor politics, democratic theory, trying to explain, you know, what creates a trustworthy um, government. And her relatively recent uh, groundbreaking study of labor unions in the interest of others, organizations and social activists, she develops a whole new theory for how some organizations expand their scope much beyond uh, what would be in the direct interest of their, their members. So, Margaret, few people could be more suited to comment on, on this than you. Thanks. So, your floor is yours, Margaret. Thanks, Eric. Can't wait to have you back at CASPIS sometime. Please <laughs> yeah. think about it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to share my screen too, but uh, my slides are just pictures. Okay, my emphasis today is really going to be on uh, civil society uh, and the role that civil society plays in creating state capacity. And right now, civil society is playing an immense role. Uh, when we think about the response to COVID, uh, the ways in which people are uh, changing their behavior, that's part of civil society. And of course, I'm in the United States where we're having a resurgence of a major racial justice movement, which is another response of civil society to some of what is going on and to thinking about the trustworthiness of government. So I want to talk about um, the ways in, I'm going to talk about three different terms here. So there's going to be a little bit of definition. What I'm really concerned about is how citizens perceive a government's trustworthiness and legitimacy, and then, then how that affects their behavior. In particular, their engagement through voting and lobbying, though I'm not going to address that so much today. I'm really going to be thinking about compliance and behavioral consent, which can include the opposites, non-compliance, protest, um, resistance of various kinds. So let me start with some definitions and then I'll get to, these, to this uh, virtuous circle of government uh, graph that I have up, picture that I have up. The first is thinking about what trust means. For me, trust, and from some of my co-authors, trust has to do with relationships and judgments. A trusts B to do C. And that means me, as A, has to figure out whether B is actually has an interest in helping me and has the competence to do so. Now, that really tells us a lot about our interactions with people, but it can also say something about government. But what government is here is B. So what we really want to figure out is whether government is trustworthy, whether it has an interest in helping me, and whether it has the competence to do so. So we look at the objective attributes of the institutions that would ensure that they will act in our interest and can, in fact, do so. Can and will government deliver goods and services? And will it do so according to standards of procedural justice, to certain kinds of norms of fairness? So we've got trust and trustworthiness. Legitimacy, I would argue, is something slightly different. It's accepted and widely shared justifications for government selection on the one hand and for its actions on the others, based on moral uh, principles and beliefs and norms, as Tim was referring to. Trustworthiness is largely about process. Legitimacy is more about the values, including the values embodied in the process. So the perceived trustworthiness of government is a result of an interaction between citizens and governments, 
about something particular, not generic or innate. So the questions and surveys, do you trust government generally all of the time, some of the time, most of the time, really doesn't get at what most of us think. We care, we think about whether the police are trustworthy, whether schools are delivering or healthcare systems are delivering on what they're supposed to do. So government actions clearly have a lot to do with determining what we think means trustworthiness, whether they're trustworthy or not. Um, are they delivering? Are they meeting standards of fairness? And government trustworthiness is often multidimensional, can be trustworthy in some regards and not others. And we're certainly seeing that in this crisis where the healthcare systems have failed in many ways. Certain local governments have stepped up to the plate when national governments have not. We're seeing huge variations in governments on multiple dimensions of trustworthiness. But whether um, a government is perceived of trust, as trustworthy obviously also depends on what citizens think, how they perceive it. And those things can be affected by a whole roast, host of factors, not all of them reality. As COVID is making clear, and as do all studies of partisanship, we see people who believe the health statistics, who believe the government, and people who do not and act accordingly or think that their governments are acting in their interest or not. When I think about measures of trustworthiness, I think that behavioral measures ultimately are much better than surveys. The problems with surveys are the questions are generally not nuanced, and they often tend to be measuring the popularity of politicians or a particular moment in time. Behavior tells us a lot more about what people really think. It's what they're willing to act on. And I've studied this in a variety of uh, domains, tax paying, which uh, Tim referred to, volunteering for military service or refusing to be conscripted, and various kinds of law abiding behavior. And all of those, of course, are complicated by other factors but at least you can measure and control for a variety of variables when you're looking at behavior and not just the attitudes reflected at a moment in time in a survey. So that leads us to this uh, diagram of the virtuous circle of government. When this was developed by me and Audrey Sachs and Tom Taylor, we were applying it to countries in Africa where there were both surveys of attitudes through the Afrobarometer but also documentation of actual government and services. There wasn't sufficient behavioral data, but we made do with what we could. And what we did see was that this virtuous circle tended to exist, and it could be a non-virtuous circle if some of these pieces were broken. So trustworthiness of government was affected, obviously, by government performance, by perceptions of leadership motivations and by the actual motivations and by administrative competence. And that led, if government was considered trustworthy, it leads to value-based legitimacy, which is reinforced or undermined by perceptions of procedural justice. And value-based legitimacy leads to a sense of obligation and willingness to obey. And that leads to behavioral legitimacy, which is compliance. And when we see large-scale compliance, that comes back and helps build the trustworthiness. of. So what does this help us understand about the current moment and the current crisis? COVID compliance is at least partially a measure of the trustworthiness of government. And we have some marvelous data now that exist 
but not great analysis yet, I have to say. So here's some of the kind of data that exists. This is, these are graphs that probably all of you have seen from Unicast. Um, this one's of the United States, which is where Unicast began to do it. And what we're seeing here is the change in average mobility based on distance traveled after certain kinds of government uh, appeals went into a place and as the health crisis began to develop. And you can see that the best states in the United States get a C minus on this. And the country as a whole gets a D minus. So compliance is not particularly high. Sorry. Okay, so this is the United States in terms of difference in encounter density. And we don't exactly improve in terms of this. We're still a D minus. We're still in the best states, a C minus. These are, um, this is a graph that is uh, more international and makes comparisons with countries from all of the different continents. As we know, New Zealand in the light blue is doing particularly well in regards to um, affecting compliance behavior. Um, this is the change in average mobility. The USA does not do very well. It's in fact competing with Brazil here for being uh, very problematic in terms of its compliance behavior. This is difference in encounter uh, density, and we see pretty much the same thing, except now the uh, Great Britain is trying to compete with the United States for uh, poor uh, compliance behavior. All of this is put in terms of um, social distancing insights and government response when uh, states of emergency were declared, etc. Uh, this is just giving the details of that. Okay, I'm going to get out of the slideshow. Okay, so what changes? Um, so as I said, we have some marvelous data, but we don't really have good analysis of it yet, I would argue, though there's some attempts to do that. So a lot of work by social scientists still needs to be done. So that leads us to questions about what changes citizens' perceptions and therefore their behavior. Obviously, actions of government is an important part of that, but no one and no government trustworthy to everyone on every dimension. So we have to nuance that account. We also know that citizens lack historical memory. So the fact that government delivered two years ago on something they cared about doesn't matter a lot right now in the midst of a crisis. We know that norms matter, as Tim referred to. But we have also learned about the important role of underlying beliefs that affect perceptions. Beliefs about how the world works, about what government should do. This is where we get into notions of a political economic framework or a moral economy. The Thatcher-Reagan shift in the 1980s led to a change in ideas about what government had a, it's a responsibility to provide to us. Moreover, perceptions often jar with reality of both the world and government's accomplishments and actions. That's another role that beliefs could play. We know, for example, in the United States that crime went down for years, but the, the confidence in the capacity of government to maintain law and order did not decline. In fact, sometimes um, distrust of it went up. We know um, that the health realities of COVID, we've got lots of information about that, but not everyone believes it or reacts the same way. Now, my focus is on the social and political construction of beliefs about how the world works and what we can do about it. 
sources of information and credibility of that information is only part of the story. And I would argue not even the most important part, though depending on where the information comes from, it can matter. Governance arrangements, however, have a huge impact. Perceptions of trustworthiness go up with transparency, procedural fairness, and real attention to voices of common citizens and not just the elites. Eric mentioned the book that I wrote with John Alquist, In the Interest of Others, where we look at labor unions and how they evoke certain labor unions, in this case, um, a series of dock workers unions uh, and the uh, longshore workers in the United States, evoked from their members a willingness to act in very costly ways often on behalf of far distant others who could never reciprocate. What these unions were able to do and what I think our country can all, countries can ultimately do is create something like a, an expanded community of fate in which our destinies are perceived as intertwined and we're willing to act in ways that may require some self-sacrifice in order to benefit the larger society. But that's not just created by a moment like what we have now. It has to be supported by institutions and governance arrangements that allow it to be sustained and maintained over time. So let me end with returning to the three terms with which I started. Trust of leaders combined with their demonstrated trustworthiness, trustworthiness and legitimacy gives them the right to try to persuade citizens to go along with policies. Trustworthiness of institutions, both objectively and as perceived, allow individuals to engage in the debates and challenges that are prior conditions to decisions and action. Results are shared legitimating beliefs about what the government can ask of its members and the conditions under which citizens are willing to go along with these demands and to act in the interest of others. Thank you. Thank you very much, Margaret, and very, very interesting. And we'll sure we'll come back to, to some of those um, points you made. So the, the last speaker, uh, certainly not least, is uh, Adnan Khan. He's a professor and colleague of mine at the School of Public Policy. And before that, he was the policy director at the LSE Oxford International Growth Center, which deals a lot with uh, state capacity in countries with a, a lot of fragilities. He's also been at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's been doing very interesting and original work on how to build state capacity from the inside, including in his native Pakistan. Uh, he has even run many innovative experiments to understand the impact of different measures. And he has an advantage, of course, having worked as a, as a, a state official in, in his country, Pakistan. And he's now working with different governments on how to make their response to COVID more effective and how to deal with the economic and social impact. So, Anand, the floor is yours. Thank you, Eric. So let me just say a few words and then uh, show a few slides. I'll take a perspective from uh, the world of development, developing countries. So state capacity, as both Tim and Margaret mentioned, is the ability of state to enforce laws, regulate economic activity, and provide public services. And it's not just a determinant of uh, economic development and trust of public, but it's also a major determinant of an, having an effective um, policy response to COVID-19 and also to citizen trust in state institutions. And that trust in turn deeply affects whether states can carry out an effective policy response in the first place. In other words, it creates a self-reinforcing cycle. 
And state capacity is not just a technical deficit addressed through technical interventions like training, uh, copying best practices from outside, externally influenced institutional reforms. Uh, it's an, essentially an organic process whereby states acquire, gradually acquire capacity learning by doing only if they so desire. Uh, sometimes lack of state capacity is by design, like Mobutu, uh, I don't think never ever thought of building state capacity in Congo. Uh, having said that, this uh, notion of uh, states with weak capacity, with uh, monolithically, like uh, call it like dysfunctional, is far from truth, does have a grain of truth, but is uh, not very true and not very helpful. As uh, Eric mentioned, most of my life I have worked in and with government. And one of the overriding features of my experience was we were always fighting fires. So battered by one shock after another, dealing with problem of the day and wishing, hoping for the problems to go away. Uh, but not necessarily getting better at either predicting or fighting the next fires. So in terms of like either preparedness or resilience. And especially harder fires to fight were the ones that fell outside the standard organizational procedure uh, for delivering service, services in, in developing countries. So one where a top level agent decides something and others implement. So the fires were the ones, uh, the hardest fires were the ones where citizen involvement was essential or the one where policy response didn't have to be uniform, but had to vary by people, places and phases. And COVID-19 is precisely such a shock. So before I describe my work, the last word I would say is, Yet within the same environment, there existed both highly motivated, capable individuals who were going way beyond the call of duty. But more importantly, there also existed subunits, uh, call it public agencies, which are highly effective, in some cases, exceptionally effective. Uh, so high performing, highly motivated, full of pride. Um, so more or less like organizational, um, functional organizations, subculture, too few with question marks over their uh, call it like resilience and sustenance, but still they existed. And that also resonates with the recent literature from various disciplines on state capacity that also points out to pockets of effectiveness in otherwise dysfunctional and weak states. So Dan Honig, for instance, attributes these to discretion and autonomy granted to these organizations. Maya Sen in her work on Kenya attributes it to strategic choices made by leaders that induce bureaucratic effectiveness in areas where it furthers the policy and political goals of the leaders. Erin McDonald in her work on Ghana and other places uh, talks about critical mass of people with a distinct subculture that cluster together to produce a highly effective um, units. And um, the billion dollar question obviously is how do we sustain those? How do we diffuse these to the rest of the state and how do we scale those up? And I'll come to those hopefully in uh, question answers. But let me quickly describe the the work that we were we have been doing um, uh, mostly in Pakistan, but also uh, colleagues have been doing similar work in uh, in uh, parts of India and elsewhere. Which is how do we actually work with the with the state uh, with variable levels of capacity in order to actually deal and have a an effective response in this case to COVID-19. 
And uh, the approach that we had, uh, which is based on coalition of people from inside and outside government and from multiple disciplines, um, public health, epi guys, uh, economists, public management people, people inside and outside government, with the idea to, to co-create state capacity with state partners. The idea being, yes, outside organizations can uh, help put pressure on the state to improve its accountability and to deliver, but you can also work with the state, uh, co-create state capacity working with them in collaboration with them. And our goal has been to both to create operational documents, produce relevant research, but also importantly, proof of concept implementation that states can then take forward. And the key question that, uh, that not just us, not just Pakistan, but that all countries have been facing is, uh, whether to have a lockdown or open up, uh, with the trade-off being a shutdown prevents spread, but risk economic collapse and non-COVID health morbidity and mortality, whereas opening up minimize socioeconomic fallout, but risk thousands dying from, from COVID-19 shock. So can we move beyond the curse of the boundary choice? And that's the crux of the work that we did. Um, the problem in countries like uh, Pakistan, but also Africa and other places is exacerbated by limited capacity, implementation constraints. You can't just wish, you can't just like uh, make a response at the top and, and expect that agents of the state down below and citizens will also comply and implement it. Uh, the models that we, like the EPI models have been quite inadequate. They're useful to as a starting point, but not enough that we soon discovered. Data of the type that exists in developed countries doesn't exist in most developing countries. So how do you how do you um, how do you make any progress? And there's a clear sense of policymakers flying blind. Can we do better than that? Um, but also blanket uh, generic policies don't work. Can we have our response that varies across space and time to better match the content? So that was the objective, uh, and. Uh, um, we just work with three basic principles. So there are details out there, happy to share those documents, but let me sh just share three basic principles on which these uh, this work was based. So one is the, the question of uh, active promoting and embedding active learning. And by that we mean like collecting all kinds of data, representative outcome data at a high frequency for, for both COVID-19, morbidity, mortality, but also non-COVID health to cater for unintended consequences of public policies and also socioeconomic impact and do all kinds of approaches, smart testing, robocall, phone survey, cell phone, Google, all of those things that are things that we're actually doing. And refine and change response based on how outcomes change as a result of policy response. In other words, address knowledge failures in real time and break decision deadlocks. So that was the first principle. Second principle, breeding, have, have like spatial response. So partition regions into smallest possible, uh, feasible, isolatable grids, urban neighborhoods and villages. In many cases, like we have gone to the smallest possible unit of a census block with just 200 to 250 households and to tailor policy response to each grid's situation and needs. In other words, like having an approach that allows for different localized and targeted therapies helps minimize health and economic losses. The third principle being grading, not just have one response throughout the country or throughout society, uh, just like with 
terrorism threat level. So color code grades into different severity grades, standardize response by grade, and communicate the grade publicly for citizens to base their responses also on. Uh, so it simplifies implementing differential response and uh, also enables effective public communication. Uh, this is how this approach uh, would work. These are different areas, different census blocks within the same city and Lahore, uh, all color-coded by their disease status and also requiring very different degrees of policy response in each. And as you can clearly see that areas in green, which were the lowest levels of uh, um, um, uh, disease prevalence, are adjacent to areas which are high disease prevalent. And you need to have differential policy responses uh, to the extent possible. And based on this, like uh, uh, based on the level at which each area is and uh, the needs of each area and where you are, um, all kinds of policies need to, to change. Here is a smart operation plan, simple template in order to enable policymakers to base their response on the basis of simple templates. Uh, this is uh, parts of it are being implemented in uh, in different areas in Pakistan. Uh, again, a question uh, where there are sharply divergent views of policymakers, where different governments with sharply different uh, political views exist in the country. Uh, it's also a measure of uh, call it partly yardstick competition, but partly. Um, an attempt by outsiders to partner with, with, with uh, agents within the state that governments across the political divide have, uh, have partnered in varying degrees to implement such an approach. Let me stop here. Uh, happy to describe more. And, um, Thank you very much, Adnan. So we have a lot of questions. And uh, those of you who know Zoom is that you can vote for different questions so you the audience uh, get to decide which questions to be asked so and this is the only reason why i'm now asking a question of a colleague of mine uh kevin featherstone who's also a professor at lse so his his um question is by far the most popular one but i think it goes to you know the observation that maybe State capacity doesn't explain everything when it comes to how how different countries um, reacted so or responded. So, so Kevin's uh, question is: One of the counterintuitive features of the pandemic has been the relative success of states thought to have weaker capacity. For example, Greece, and he's the professor of the Hellenic Center, so that may be a reason. And the problematic performance of others like the UK. Are there any comments to this? So. Just, is is UK an example of a, a state with a lot of fragilities or failing state, a state that has weak capacities? Or how, how do we explain my own country, Sweden, is on the essentially at the same level of performance as the UK in, in, in this? Um, what are the limits to... to um, to state capacity as an explanation for what we observe. Tim, should I give it to you first? Yeah, I mean, I think Kevin's question is a really good one. And uh, I, I don't think I have an entirely satisfactory answer, but, but I, I think that there are a lot of questions about the international comparisons at the moment that, uh, and, and I, I certainly wouldn't be in the position of arguing that uh, state capacity is, 
is all that matters. I think uh, I'll make a, a couple of comments though. I think if you look in, I think I think Kevin's being a little unfair to Greece to describe it as a weak state capacity country. I mean, by any global standard, it's a country with a well-developed state capacity. It's true that uh, during the financial crisis, its weaknesses, particularly in its uh, um, tax system and its financial side of the economy, were, were exposed. But by and large, I wouldn't put it in, a, in, in that global category of weak state capacity. But that's but but but, but that, that doesn't really get to Kevin Kevin's point because it's well taken. And I you know the question of whether the UK has underperformed, given where it appears on the state capacity measures. I think is a is a really uh, interesting one too. Uh, if you look at the the GHS measures of global pandemic preparedness um, that were done way before the um, crisis, the two countries that were described as being the best prepared in the world uh, for the pandemic by the GHS were the UK and the US. Um, but yet, if you look now at the uh, the reported death statistics, I don't think they seem to bear bear that out. So it certainly suggests that there's a role for lots of particular factors around political leadership and the factors that trigger rapid response, which are not fully explained by um, uh, having developed tax, legal systems, and, uh, and even uh, relatively high quality health systems. Um, I think I think the question of politics remaining centrally here is key. I mean, Greece, interestingly, made a very early lockdown decision, which I don't think can be explained specifically by its state capacity. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, Kevin's completely right that, that there are many other factors that go into the equation uh, apart from uh, apart from uh, the, the kind of regular state capacity elements. Margaret, do you want to come in on this as well? Yeah, I, I want to uh, emphasize as well the role of political leadership, which we clearly are seeing um, huge variations about. And it's, it's leadership in terms of making decisions based on evidence and uh, to, to act and to create certain kinds of policies that will protect the populace and you know, in my own country, the federal government was pretty remiss in that regard, which certainly explains our underachieving to some extent. But it's also a question I, I do want to get back to the civil society piece of state capacity and that, you know, not a, not enough um, is, thinking is going into, I mean, the Swedish case is a very interesting case, Eric, because there's a case which has um, a huge amount of uh civil society capacity to comply. And that was what was being counted on, that willing compliance would do a huge amount of the trick. And so what we've learned from the Swedish case is that in these kinds of crises, we need a combination of good state institutions, of which there's a lot of variation, particularly when we come to uh, the capacity of our health systems to, to deliver and to deliver equ equitably, that gets into what is normally thought of as state capacity issues. There's a huge variation in political leadership. I think half the world would like uh, the prime minister of New Zealand to be the head of their government at this point. But there's also a, a huge, and they also had some other advantages, an island that could shut itself off. But there's also a huge amount of variation in um, the willingness of a polity to who they believe. 
um, and uh, their their confidence in science, their confidence in leadership, their confidence in the institutions. And that's beginning to be uh, very apparent in understanding why we're seeing very different reactions. I mean, here the U.S. is a wonderful test case because with 50 states, you actually have not just the federal leadership and the federal responses, but you can look at the huge variation among states uh, within the United States, as well as we can begin to parse this eventually um, among countries. So the question here that come up one along the, the sort of highly, most highly rated question is, is a very simple one. And, and it takes starts exactly from this observation of, of uh, New Zealand that, you know, smaller countries, so islands, we, I think we understand, even though UK by some definitions is a, an island, but, but uh, the, uh, the size of the state, is that, is there any lesson, uh, this is a question from, anyhow, it was, a, so they were pointing to the experience of Finland, Latvia, you know, relatively small countries, I guess, uh, it's from Hillary Briffa. Is it easier for smaller states to respond? Uh. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, like uh, state capacity is not just a theoretical concept. It's not just a de jure capacity uh, of what exists on paper, but how it is deployed. So it's fundamentally also a question of political choice. Mm. And um, it, size is not necessarily a predictor um, of uh, effective state capacity. Let me give you many examples. Uh, so one, Uganda and Rwanda are roughly states of the same size, uh, having completely different um, policy responses. Rwanda having a quite sensible, smart policy, um, deploying high levels of uh, state effectiveness, but also citizen compliance. While Uganda having a policy of a blanket lockdown where people were not allowed to go outside their home, where even going to hospitals would require getting permission from, from a state agent. And there were only five such agents throughout the country. And just imagine like uh, the unintended, the potential unintended consequences of such a policy. Uh, I can give you many other examples of states, uh, even like a sub uh, national units within large countries like India, uh, Pakistan, any other countries performing very differently. Uh, so it's fundamentally a political choice, and it's not just a question of also deployed state capacity, but also choices, political choices, and sometimes also a function of pockets of effectiveness, key individuals and pockets of effectiveness that may differentially exist in, in different places. Tim was talking in yeah, his let me come in on that. I mean, I'm going to slightly widen out the question because there are a large number of people at the minute looking for correlates of apparent success in the crisis. And, you know, there are many different dimensions of that. It could be country size. It could be democratic versus non-democratic. It could be free media versus non-free media. There's a whole different set of dimensions out there by which states differ. And, you know, sooner or later, we will do our best to untangle all these different elements and say something about it. But I think it's way, way too early. And nobody, as far as I know, is doing a credible job. And the other problem is how, how does one sort of calibrate success here? Well, the success, obviously, in con containing the infection, and that's often something people are looking at. But if you look at the comparability of international data, um, what, what, you know, I don't think it can explain some of the huge differences across countries, but I think we may end up revising our measures even on that basis, particularly when we start looking at, at, at excess mortality rather than raw, raw deaths. 
Um, so there's a whole series of issues about how to how to actually uh, calibrate and measure success. Of course, there'll be a whole new set of, uh, of work to be done once we start to get a clearer picture of the economic consequences. And I don't just mean the aggregate consequences. You know, some, some economies' GDP will fall faster than others, but also it'll be clear some economies will have done a lot better on social protection than others. Mm. Um, so even for a given fall in GDP, there may be much more hardship in some places than others because of the way the distribution of that hit has been, been felt. And I just think we're a little bit too early to be trying to say we have very compelling knowledge on that. I mean, and, and I, you know, of course, for, for an academic, you always say that, you know, we need to do more research. But, but really, in this case, it's entirely unhelpful in the midst of all of this to start saying, yes, but it's factor A or B. Um, because I think we're almost certainly going to get it wrong if we start uh, expressing very strong views at this point. Um, I think what we have to get on, on with and what we, we, we need to do is to give the best possible advice to governments and to point out where government could benefit from uh, uh, better uh, knowledge input. And I think one of the areas that I talked about in my presentation is getting a much clearer statement on what success and failure means to governments themselves. I mean, I think New Zealand could be almost certainly quite proud of itself for the achievements uh, during this crisis. Um, but and other governments would be less willing, I think, to stand up and say we have been successful for reason X or Y. But I, I do think we need to get a better debate on what is a good outcome? Why are we doing things to achieve that better outcome? That's a much better debate to be having at, at the moment than looking over our shoulders and saying, can't we be more like Germany if you're Britain or more like New Zealand? I don't think that's actually helping in the, in the current crisis. What, what I mean, the one aspect of size is, of course, uh, heterogeneity. I mean, this, you said initially, and I think this is something that's important to your own work, that this sense of common interest. And um, so more heterogeneous societies, it is more difficult to to create state capacity. In, in Yeah, but we shouldn't confuse... Um, homogeneity and decisiveness, meaning that you can have a, a majoritarian government controlled by one particular faction at any point in time that speaks decisively in the current policy climate. But that doesn't mean that's a cohesive government because there could be many people who are not buying into the, uh, the, the current the actions of the current government. So so I think we need to be a little careful with with thinking about sort of stable, effective government and cohesive government. They're not one and the same. The cohesive government is about building broad-based coalitions for action and how we go about doing that. And I think things like media freedom are important there because actions are subject to sufficient public scrutiny, but also governments can better communicate their actions and try and build that kind of cohesive behavior. I'm sure Margaret's got something to, to but say. I also think that, that there, you know, what this is really revealing is the multiple dimensions of state capacity. So uh, in the first question, the sort of emphasis on fiscal capacity as the measure of a capacity of government. So in that case, Britain and the U.S. look very strong. But if you look at other dimensions of state capacity, the U.S. is pretty weak in terms of its uh, capacity to deliver health care equitably. Um, we're pretty weak in terms of our social insurance systems. And so one of the things that we're beginning to, it, that this crisis is, a, is allowing us to see, unfortunately, 
is how these things are so interconnected and that if you're going to be able to respond to a crisis, you can't think you're a strong straight state just because, or a good, you know, an effective state, just because you have policing, military and taxes, that it's a much more complex environment. And you look at a country um, like New Zealand, which might be tiny and might have certain kinds of advantages. It's not totally uh, homogeneous, by the way. It's it's got its own ethnic and racial splits, but it has a, it has figured out, at least for the moment, how to intertwine those various aspects of of state capacity and to and to create a kind of um, community of fate around this crisis fate, not faith, fate, around this crisis and to build on that to create a cohesive politics. So it ultimately does come back to a combination of politics and institutions and how they're playing out with each other. I mean, there's one story, if you look at the UK, where where what seemed to have been missing was a sort of coherent scientific story, so that it has sort of been changing over time and, and politicians sort of use this in a way to to try to create a, a kind of ambiguity about what science said and so on to push their own policies i don't know if you recognize this from any of your of your um uh the studies you have you have um worked with it you know there is a you know we need somehow in the political debate to have you know some element of a, a narrative that that people can uh, trust or not trust, but you, you need to create that narrative. Is, is that something that you have come across, the role of science in, in, in creating this um, capacity of, of the state? Yeah, well, the role of science, I mean, there, the, the work on um, confidence in science and trust, mm. the trustworthiness of science, mm. it's actually pretty high um, everywhere. That's one of the things that has not tended to decline seriously. The problem in this crisis, as you were pointing out, Eric, is that nobody exactly knows much about this disease. We don't really understand its trajectory. We know that we don't have a vaccine. The treatments are, you know, I read the New York Times today and the whole ideas about treatments are changing. So yeah, there's not a consistent story about it, but there is one narrative that is dominant that the countries that have, um, I, I am going to put quotation marks around succeeded because I think the it's still too early to tell, but they've just emphasized that this is dangerous, mm. you know, and that there's certain very clear things that will help us. And they haven't gotten into in depth about the various kinds of drugs that will work or the treatments that will work that we know that social distancing and masks make a difference and that we have to protect ourselves. And by protecting ourselves, we protect other people. So that's the narrative that really has where it's worked, uh, where there's been, quote, success, has been that very simple narrative. And that, and it, there's no question that the politicians, where they have chosen to, have used the fact that science is a bit at a loss right now about they're struggling, as science should, to try to find solutions and their experiments and their failed attempts and their successful attempts They've used that to create a kind of discord. But that, again, comes back to our politics and our institutions that allow that to happen. And um, 
an effort by politicians and by certain kinds of actors to create divisions where they don't need to exist. It's not the science's fault. Mm. No. <laughs> just, just, just following on from that, I think there's a, there's a very da- dangerous disconnect between we're listening to the science and we're outsourcing the decisions to yeah. scientists. Yeah. And those yes. two seem to get confused. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, there are key decisions to be made by government. For example, we know that this has a huge intergenerational uh, distributional impact, that the young are being disproportionately affected. And most of the scarring effect of this crisis will be felt by the young who miss out on educational opportunities, on job opportunities. And that, at the end of the day, that we have to have that debate and we have to have people who are up front about the costs we're imposing and how we're doing that. On the other side of the ledger are the benefits, the health benefits. But I feel that quite often that balanced debate between, yes, and we know we're imposing costs and this could be generational, um, isn't quite figuring. And, and that's the role of politics to both take the science, but not to hide behind the science. And I, you know, when I, I, think, I think it's a thin line, but, but it's one that, that, that really is a, a, a difficult balance to achieve. And I don't think some pronouncements that I've heard from various governments uh, have got the right side of that line. Yeah. It is interesting. We thought that science would get a big push by this, but actually there's some recent work by Barry Eisengreen and others showing that actually those who were exposed in their formative years to, to, to um, pandemics are more negative on science. So they, you know, it's, it's, it's also a way to show, as we have said now, there's no, science is more complicated than then yes, there's no simple truth that we, and, and we don't know so much about this virus. Anyhow, there are so many questions here. I don't want to uh, take away from, from that time. There's a, one question that is very um, highly rated by the audience and it's, it goes to, back to politics, of course. And it's about looking at um, Latin America and it says Federico Diaz, who is a LSE alumnus. He says South America faced an extreme privatization of public services such as health, pension system and so on, plus an enormous level of inequality. How will this affect the COVID response in these countries? Well, we know that Latin America now is, is at least one of the epicenters. How, how do we, what do we learn about state capacity from, from that experience and, and of privatization? Tim, well, do I do think- okay, Margaret, please, Margaret, go. I do think that one of the major issues that's coming out of this crisis, and it's not just for Latin America, though that's that's a strong example of this, is where Tim just ended, actually, with the distributional effects um, and the inequality of access to various kinds of services and to programs. And that's, of course, um, creating another level of politics that we're going to be addressing for years that what this has uh, made so apparent is that there are big winners and losers. So Tim emphasized uh, the intergenerational impact of the economic crisis um, that has been generated by the health crisis. But they're also, it's, it's also revealing other kinds of, uh, in the United States, obviously, it's, it's it's raising, um, once again, and making it hard for all of us to ignore the kinds of racial uh, disparities that have existed. And that's true in Brazil as well, and in many Latin American countries, 
where that is going to be shown. So it's creating another kind of popular politics and um, resistance, protest, um, demands on government, which I think in the long term are healthy and will make us better polities if we're able to take advantage of this moment and transform our institutions. I mean, I, I'm part of a project which is really thinking about, and, and this relates to the earlier um, webcast that you did with Wendy Carlin and Sam Bowles, in really thinking about what kinds of political economic structures um, we need going forward. We were already having uh, some problems with the ones that existed even before the COVID crisis. Um, the, the structures of supply-side economics and neoliberalism were beginning to fail us. And the, this crisis only reveals more strongly how much we need new political institutions, a new kind of politics. Um, the democracy that I in, live in is now over 200 years old, and a lot of the rules and constitutional arrangements are no longer relevant to the current era. So we're, we're, we have to rethink some of our institutions, some of our economic uh, processes and ways of doing things, and our politics itself. And just, just following on that, and I, I agree with Mar what Margaret just said, I think one thing on state capacity in Latin America, I had to give a talk about five or six years ago, and I'd never just done a scatter plot of different measures of state capacity in Latin America in preparation for the talk. I just looked at where they were relative to the relationship between income and state capacity across the world. And consistently, all of the Latin American countries were lying below the line. They were, in other words, outliers of a negative kind on state capacity. And uh, so, I mean, of course, that doesn't imply any kind of uh, insight into what's going on. But of course, equally, if you draw that same picture and you put high inequality countries, you tend to find they're also below the line. And I think the, the and so, you know, saying that you can infer from that, that therefore it's the inequality dimension of, of Latin America that is leading to the weakness of state capacity is not necessarily uh, convincingly established by a scatter plot like that. But then if you dig deeper, I think the thing that one is struck about by is not just it's the nature of economic inequality, but the way that translates into political inequality and the nature of the elite politics in many countries of Latin America and the consequences of that for the way the state functions and who it chooses to, to prioritize and the way it directs its, uh, its operations towards different groups in society. And I think this, there is something real in that. Of course, it's a long-standing theme among those who study the politics of Latin America, but it, it's real. And I think we are seeing that playing out in its own way in the current crisis across many of the countries, even though I don't profess to be an expert on Latin America, it's it's really manifest in some of the countries where uh, uh, very, very clearly they're, 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 there's a real struggle going on to cope with the crisis. I know you must have come across this in Pakistan, for sure. I mean, this issue yeah. of privatization. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is, uh, I agree with everything, is uh, historically, I think major investments in state capacity have usually followed a wars like in Europe and other countries, or similar such experience of shared sacrifice and shared purpose. Um, uh, think of the depression like New Deal uh, era increase in state capacity or the building of welfare states in many countries after World War II. Whether this current crisis leads to a similar inflection point in developing countries, Latin America and other countries, 
depends a lot on um, i would say nature of politics here whether it's cohesive politics of the type that uh, tim is talking about uh, with checks and balances uh, trust and legitimacy in the state and the nature of politics being such that it helps uh, leverage a sense of shared sacrifice into into concrete policies uh versus whether it's a question of like uh, you have a polarized polity there's no sense of common purpose which is also true for many other many countries and in latin americas uh thinking of uh, chile where federico comes from or brazil and other places high levels of inequality may uh translate into polarized polity and uh, and may not be conducive to a sense of shared sacrifice that may help um, change the trajectory of history. Margaret, there's a question for you here. You mentioned uh, that the citizen's memory uh, is quite short when it comes to trusting government for things that happened in the past. This is from Orkun Saka, Sussex and LSE. Do you think also this applies to disasters and failed policy responses? In other words, do you think citizens' trust in government may be scarred due to COVID-19, especially in those places that disappointed their citizens? Well, I think that there is a symmetry in um, the ways in which citizens perceive government trustworthiness. So it's very hard to earn, but it's very easy to lose. And then it's hard to rebuild it again. And so I do think that cases like um, huge failures in state capacity during pandemics and disasters do have a scarring effect that can last for a much longer period of time. On the other hand, when governments deliver very well, um, that tends to be relatively short-lived in terms of citizens' memory. As soon as there's sort of a mistake um, or a problem, uh, that tends to to gain dominance. Um, I can give concrete examples of that from history and around the world, but um, given, given I don't want to give a whole lecture on that. Um, so I think that that's a common understanding of the way in which the sort of dynamics of the of citizen perceptions of trustworthiness works. Eric, if I could just come on briefly on this. I think there's an important difference between what I call the narrative around battles and wars. So what do I mean by that? Um, you, you can lose battles, but only if you articulate why that was a sensible decision to engage in that battle as part of a war. And I view that as very similar as a kind of good metaphor for what makes government effective. You can have failures, and almost certainly you will. But if people have a sense of a wider strategic objective, which is arrived at and can be articulated, they are willing to accept some of the setbacks. Now, of course, if there's just setbacks all the time, nobody's going to believe in the grander narrative of the the justice of the war, if you like. But I think when we're thinking of COVID, there will be many things we do poorly. But if people see a wider strategy that has a coherence, they're going to be willing to to offset some of those failures because they can see the wider vision. And what worries me is the lack of articulation of that wider narrative in which you you can wear a certain amount of lack of success in order to have that grander uh, vision of what you're trying to achieve. Let me tell you a comment again here. I would say that uh, I agree with him. But developing a narrative, a common narrative is also like... um, um a process uh, not an event and active learning uh, is also needed here uh, more so for developing countries uh, because some of your early actions and may fail but how do you learn from those how do you course correct uh, 
how do you institute uh, error correction mechanism is a key part of that is a key part of how whether you build local organic capacity um, whether you build a leverage from the pockets of effectiveness and build generalized capacity but also um, um, address help address some of those underlying uh, drivers of state so there, there are some questions on the role of culture for state capacity so the, one question comes from uh, uh, Jing Chang, uh, UCL. And um, the question is really about face masks and, and the observation that in Asia, for example, it's much easier to get acceptance for people wearing face masks. And, and uh, so, so, so the question is, what factors do you think may better explain these behaviors so people's willingness to wearing face masks? How can we, can we make an analysis about it? But I guess it's related to a broader issue of, of is it easier to get um, compliance, um, uh, this behavioral legitimacy based on values that comes out of culture? Margaret, probably this is for you. Well, I think culture can play a role in it, but let's, let's put the Asian context here um, into play because the, their experience with SARS and some other health uh, problems in the past has it's not just a question of culture, it's a question of learning too. So I think this is getting to some of the stuff that Anna was talking about as well. They've been, they've had an experience, they've had a series of experiences in most Asian countries that have also, that have prepared them to deal with this. Now, um, there is obviously a variation in cultures that can have huge consequences for compliance behavior. Um, so, and that often that culture is, again, it's based on historical experience. So if your history with government has been one in which it has, this is a problem for Francophones in Canada, for um, some of the Irish in the UK. I mean, it's, a, it's not just a racial problem. It's a question of perceptions of whether government is serving your interest or not, and that will then affect uh, whether you're more likely to be compliant with its demands, because that larger narrative, as Tim was describing it, of whether the strategies are there to really help you um, may may not, not exist for those particular groups. And so that will affect that compliance behavior. And that's cultural in one sense. In another sense, it's really historical. It's really experiential. Anyone else want to come in on the role oh, of culture? I just culture? want to add one other thing. The other, the other way in which culture, as it were, could play into this mm. is uh, what we're seeing in the United States with mask, mask wearing, where uh, our president has made it a point of honor not to wear a mask and is thus sending a message, as it were, a cultural message and story to a group of a certain kind of supporters. And so it's become... You know, you can almost tell who's a Democrat and who's a Republican walking around uh, by who's wearing a mask and who isn't. Is that cultural or is that politics? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so uh, there is some, of course, discussion in, in particularly in the sociological literature, but also in political science, I think, the distinction between strong societies and weak states or, you know, it's how, so there's a question here from Anya Ekbo, and she says, She's at Dartmouth College and an LSE alumna. 
is I would like to seek views from states that is in the last administrations have been stripping out the public sector and, and finances prior to COVID-19, as in Mexico. And, uh, you know, said so Mexico was, by Joel Migdal, qualified as weak state, strong societies. How do you see that tension? Huh? That, I think, is for you, Margaret, again. My old colleague, Joel Migdal, yeah. um, at the University of Washington. Hmm. Um, well, we're seeing a lot of hollowing out of states. That's been, hmm. that's been going on uh, really since the 1980s and a certain hmm. kind of ideology, as I was referring to before, that saw the role of government as being, um, should be reduced. And we're, we're bearing those effects right now in a number of countries. In terms of the strong society, weak states analogy, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how that plays in here because there, there are so many factors going on. I mean, we've talked about, um, the distributional effects of both the health uh, system and of economics. So a strong society um, in this case would have to also be coordinated around something. And I think we're seeing cleavages, not coordination in a lot of societies, partially um, created by leadership, but not only. Yeah, and if I could just add, add to this, I, I mean, I think it's it's dangerous to get locked into what is state, what is private. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about purpose and what institutions and organizations exist to do and how they achieve it. I mean, the, there is this uh, narrative around, oh, we, 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 as you say, we, we state strong societies, but, you know, equally Bob Putnam in his work on Italy pointed out that it's exactly in those places where civil society is strongest that the state works better. So that looks like a complementarity between state and society, and I'm more convinced that that's that that is a that's a a model. And why? It's because at the end of the day, state and society and markets work around creating a common sense of purpose. The moment we need, for example, markets to be investing for the long term to help aid the recovery. Uh, so you know the, the fact that they're motivated by profit predominantly. It is about creating purpose that's useful to society. And at the moment, that is job creation and investment. So all the time, it's about getting people pushing together in the same direction so that the state, the civil society, and uh, the private sector work together to, to achieve prosperity and uh, well-being for all. And that's the trick. And I think breaking it down into tensions between those different elements, I think, uh, really gets away from the fact it's when they work together that we create successful polities, countries, and societies. Okay, I think we are unfortunately running out of time. I heard 40 questions in the Q&A, and we had a few on, on the Facebook as well. Thank you very much. It's been a, a most interesting discussion. I think we, we all agree that it's too early to, to say that certain countries have succeeded and others have failed. We have some early evidence, but it's, you know, to be conclusive on this. And probably we also agree that state capacity is only one of the possible explanations of these uh, differences across countries. But I think we got a very rich idea of what can constitute uh, civil uh, state capacity, how civil society plays a role in this, how you can build state capacity from the inside from Adnan's work. 
So thank you very much. It's been very enriching and, and um, we will also share all the questions with you panelists if you want to uh, pursue them uh, with the um, uh, individual questionnaires um, uh, later. So thank you very much.